I've entitled today's sermon, More Laborers for Gospel Ministry. Our text is Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. And we're talking about new laborers or more laborers, specifically Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Well, last week we left Paul in that important city of Corinth. And this morning we're going to follow him on a journey of some 1,200 to 1,300 miles. But Luke summarizes this journey in just a, a few verses. So let's begin our text reading at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through all the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the entire canon that we have from Genesis to Revelation. We know that every word that you have spoken is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Lord, we thank you again that you chose men to write your word as you carried them along by your spirit. And as you breathed out the word, they wrote it down. You wrote it through them. Lord, we, we thank you also for the way your scriptures come to us again and again and, and instruct us and, and, and many times catch us off guard as you, as you speak to us. Lord, we ask that you will open this passage to us today again. We, we pray that Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you would transform us for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week back in Corinth, we were introduced to a couple in the passage. And, and Luke listed them as Aquila and Priscilla, but now it's Priscilla and Aquila. Their names will occur six times in Scripture, three by Luke and three by Paul. And Paul, just like Luke, introduces them formally as Aquila and Priscilla, and then he goes on to speak of them as Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, she's also known by Paul, of course, by the name Priscilla, uh, which is kind of like the more formal name. It's a bit like Elizabeth versus Liz or something like that. Well, this, this uh, little portion of Scripture has this journey where Paul goes from Corinth to the port city of Cancria to the east and then across the Aegean to Ephesus, taking with him Priscilla and Aquila, and he leaves from there, then by the Mediterranean Sea, he makes his way to Caesarea. After which, he'll li he likely went to Jerusalem, and then north to the home church 
in Antioch in Syria. Having spent some time in Antioch in Syria, he then makes his way back by land, going to places that we we first uh, looked at on Paul's journey, his first missionary journey, Iconium, Lystra, Derb, and so forth, and then by land route back to Ephesus. It's about 12 or 1,300 miles. And Luke summarizes it for us all in just a few verses. Then Apollos, somewhat of a new figure for us in Acts, an enormously important figure in the New Testament, uh, comes on the scene. And what we have in this this sketch here, as we're looking at this portion of, of Scripture in Acts, are three cameo sketches, and each contains something of a puzzle. Well, the first one is the Apostle Paul. Luke tells us in, in almost matter-of-fact uh, words that, that he makes this extraordinary journey all the way back to Caesarea and Antioch and eventually back to Ephesus again. But he tells us that in Cancria, in the port city of Corinth, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And we have our questions about that. But Luke doesn't give us any answers. Then there's Apollos. He's an Egyptian. He comes from Alexandria. And it would be hard to exaggerate the importance of the great city of Alexandria on the northern coast of Africa. The story of the spread of Christianity through northern Africa along that strip of just a few miles right there at the uppermost part of northern Africa. And Apollos, uh, he's, he's obviously converted. What he's saying is true. He comes from Egypt, comes from Alexandria. He finds himself now in Ephesus, and he will end up in Corinth. And yet there's something odd about him because Luke tells us that he only knows the baptism of John. And again, all the questions start... Coming to mind, Luke, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Then the third cameo sketch is that of Priscilla and Aquila, this godly married couple, this ministry team, really. This is family ministry, supportive ministry in the life in the church of Ephesus, a godly couple who themselves are exiles from the city of Rome. We met them last week in Corinth, but now they're in Ephesus. And again, there's something of a puzzle here. Why does Luke refer to them now as Priscilla and Aquila when before he introduced us as he introduced them as Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe not a big deal. Maybe there is a reason for that. So we have three cameo portraits and three puzzles, if you will. And I have to tell you up front, I don't have all the answers. So let's begin with that first cameo, which is Paul. And we, we pick up in Corinth there, and we read in verse 18, in chapter 18, that he spent many days there. Now Luke has already told us that he's been there for 18 months And then remember from last week, Gallio, the proconsul in Corinth and in this region of Achaia, he's given a political or a legal verdict in favor of Paul. Well, at least he hasn't favored the arguments of the Jews against Paul. We could say that much. It's it's a very important thing that Gallio does, and I think for at least a short period of time during the, the rest of the reign of Emperor Claudius, it means that the gospel is given a period of, of peace for a few years. So God in his good providence, he's working out the circumstances to enable churches to stabilize and to grow. Not going to last long, but Gallio's decision in that brief period of church history has significant consequences for that region. And Paul can now travel throughout Achaia, and, and I, I think we see a little bit of that. So he's there for 18 months, and he decides he needs to go back to Antioch, the home church, back in Syria. And he catches a boat in Cancria, one of the port cities of Corinth, to the east of Corinth. And he travels across the Aegean to this extraordinary city of Ephesus. Now, 
I'm not going to say a lot about Ephesus this morning because for the next two chapters in, in Acts, we're going to spend a wonderful uh, Mediterranean vacation in Ephesus over the next couple of weeks. So I'll be saying a lot more about uh, this extraordinary city then because Ephesus is as important, perhaps even a little more so, than the city of Corinth. And so Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. He leaves them in Ephesus. But Luke tells us that at Cancria, he cuts his hair. Now, God wrote every word of the Bible. He didn't leave anything out that we should know. And yet, it's a little curious, isn't it? I mean, I've mentioned this before, but why doesn't Luke tell us more about the details here about Paul? I'd like to know, in addition to what it really meant when he cut his hair, to uh, what did he eat? What did he wear? Where did he sleep? Where did he stay? Now, sometimes there's a clue as to if he stayed in someone's house or not. Other times, Luke just doesn't tell us. So why is he telling us here that Paul cut his hair in Cancria. Well, first you need to know that this phrase could actually apply to Aquila based on the way it's arranged in the Greek, but, but due to the context, Paul is probably in view here. But Luke gives us a clue and he says, well, he had made a vow. Well, what kind of a vow was it? Well, if this is a Nazarite vow, it's, it's mentioned in, as mentioned in Numbers 6, then it involves some pretty rigorous ceremonial purity the kind that would even be impractical to implement in Gentile lands. I mean, go home this afternoon and read Numbers uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and it'll talk about the Nazarite vow there, and there are a lot of stipulations. But a Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. It was a temporary vow, and it was a costly vow that men and women could, could make that involved three main things. Number one, they would refrain from strong drink, they would also refrain from almost anything to do with grapes, either wine or grape juice, wine skins, uh, raisins, whatever. And thirdly, from having a haircut. Now, it's the haircut part that's the clue that this might be a Nazarite vow. And as, as you, if you make a Nazarite vow as a way of thanksgiving for extraordinary deliverance, perhaps, that God had given you in the course of his good providence, uh, that, that's one of the things that, that could be done. Of course, if you've been a Christian long enough, uh, there have been times in your own life when you felt like that you had just dodged a freight train by about six inches that was traveling about 60 miles an hour, and you're really grateful for that. Other times you felt maybe something of God's extraordinary blessing, times when you maybe have been drawn closer to Him, and you just feel it's though in your heart you just... You just want to give yourself to the Lord in a specific way, uh, for some ex- in an extraordinary way. Well, the Nazarite vow was, was kind of like that. It was, a, it was a public thing. By not cutting your hair for a period of time, it was saying publicly, I am the Lord's, I'm giving myself to Him, I don't care who knows about it, this is something that I, that I want the whole world to know. I, I'm especially devoted to the Lord. And at the termination of this Nazarite vow, your hair would be cut. Actually, you would, you would shave yourself entirely. And if you were in the Old Testament era and you were near Jerusalem, you would take the hair that you had cut and, and it would be ceremonially burned in some way. And then an offering would be given. A ewe lamb, a male lamb, and a ram, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings. It was an enormously costly thing to finish this vow. It looks as though, although not everyone agrees, but it looks as though 
what is happening here is that a Nazarite vow is being terminated. This isn't the beginning of the vow. This is a termination point. He hasn't come to Ephesus. So it, it's, it has nothing to do with anything that's going on in Ephesus. If that's the point, it has something to do with what went on in Corinth. Well, what went on in Corinth? Well, this decision of Gallio, this vision, this voice that Paul heard that God would deliver him from physical harm in Corinth. Uh, he's been there 18 months or so, and he hasn't been whipped. He hasn't been put into prison. He hasn't been beaten. You know how thankful Paul must have been for that? Uh, after all the things that had happened to him on the second missionary journey, he's had about 18 months or maybe two years of, of respite. He's been able to go about and minister and do the things that he loves to do for the Lord and, and to do so without uh, fear of harm or danger. So maybe at the, at the tail end of what he enters into, this Nazarite vow, this, this could be that time. And now, where I have some problems with the suggestion that in order to complete this vow, uh, if you're far away from Jerusalem, you would collect the hair, you would, you would take it to the temple in order to burn it, and then you would offer all these sacrifices. Now, I have to tell you, I have problems with the idea that, that Paul, at this stage of his life and in, in the development of the, of the early church, that Paul would actually offer sacrifices that included um, a blood sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. I, I just can't imagine Paul doing that at this stage. I also realize that this is a time of transition in the church, so it's problematic as to when true Christians, I'm talking Christians who truly trusted in Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah, when did they actually move away from the temple and these certain ceremonial uh, law and and sacrifices and so forth? That's a difficult question to answer. We we certainly see Paul in the synagogue. The synagogue, of course, though, didn't involve uh, ritual blood sacrifice, but the temple was another thing. In addition to that, if you're reading the King James Version this morning, then you have a different text here. There's a, there's a variant reading. In verse 21, part of it says, But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. Well, that's not found in our ESV. In, in verse 22, we only read that he went to Caesarea, and he went up to the church. Uh, now, the inference is that he went up. You, you know, you ascend Mount Zion. So going up from Caesarea means you're going up to Jerusalem. And then down, although you're going north, but actually geographically, topographically, you're going down to Antioch. All of that's an inference uh, that's not here in the text. And I have no problem with the idea of if if Paul was was making a Nazarite vow. I just suppose that we'll have to ask him maybe when we get to heaven about what he did about that. If that's a Nazarite vow, Paul, did you make sacrifices in the temple? If so, why? Uh, but you know, there are times in our lives we believe in making vows. I mean, we make vows when we get married. We make vows when we join the church. We make vows at the time of baptisms. We we make vows when when people become when men become pastors and elders and deacons in the church. And yet, there are some traditions in the church. The Anabaptists, for example, at the time of the Reformation, well, they were totally against making vows. They understood something of of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, though I think incorrectly, uh, about vows. Jesus isn't saying that vows in and of themselves are wrong, but it was the motive for which they were making these vows that were wrong. And then there are times in our lives when God draws near, times when we experience extraordinary deliverances in his providence, when it might be the proper thing to actually give ourselves to him in gratitude, in acknowledgement of what God has done for him, that for a period of time we devote ourselves to the Lord, we consecrate ourselves 
to serve Him. Maybe that's, that is uh, God's word for some of us here today. That we've never even thought of doing a thing like that. You know, that our focus might be so this-worldly at times that the very idea of refraining from doing certain things for just a period of time, I mean, things that would be parallel to fasting, if you will, that there are occasions in our lives when as an act of gratitude, as an act of consecration, as an act of focusing upon the Lord for a time, we engage in something like Paul is even done here, just abstaining from things or as a, as a way to just give great thanksgiving to the Lord. So this first cameo we have is Paul, and it's puzzling uh, as we hear about it. And then the second one is Apollos. The, the, and the puzzle with him is he only knew the baptism of John. Now here's a man, he's an Egyptian, he comes from the great city of Alexandria. That was where the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures was, was done, the so-called the Septuagint. This enormously important document, it was the Bible, the version of the Bible that was translated that most people in Paul's day were actually reading. Many of them were no longer reading the Hebrew scriptures, they were reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Well, that translation had been done in Alexandria. Alexandria was also where Philo uh, came from. Philo was a contemporary of Jesus, and he was a man who was trying to answer the question as to the relationship of the Hebrew Scriptures to Greek philosophy. And he didn't always uh, answer it correctly, but he was trying to answer that relationship. So here's this man, Apollos. He's an Egyptian. He comes to preach in the great city of Ephesus, and he's Jewish, but there's no hint from Luke. Luke doesn't tell us anything at all about how Apollos became a Christian. So, there's another puzzle. Did, did he become a Christian after the persecution of Stephen? When many of the Jews, you remember, believers who had come to faith in Christ, they had left the city? Well, maybe. Uh, some of them went up to Antioch. We've already seen how important the northern city of Antioch is in Syria. Some of them fled to the northern coast of Africa. Perhaps that's how Apollos became a believer. We know that Christianity on the northern coast of Africa, and particularly in Alexandria, had some problems with it. Uh, some of it, and, and we don't need to go into all that now, but it's often thought that some of it uh, had some Gnostic tendencies, uh, some mis mystical tendencies, bits of philosophy and so on mixed in with Christianity. But what Luke tells us is that <clears throat> this man was eloquent, verse 24. He was competent in the scriptures, verse 25. He was a follower of the way. That's one of the wonderful expressions that Luke is fond of using, that he's a follower of the way. <clears throat> he's also fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately concerning the things about Jesus. He was a great preacher. He was an eloquent preacher. He's fervent in spirit. And he came to the synagogue, and that's where Priscilla and Aquila hear him. And they see in him the evident marks and qualities of a man who's endowed with gifts by the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim and teach the word of God. And their hearts are thrilled as they listen to Apollos, this Egyptian, preaching in the synagogue in Ephesus. But there's something missing. There's, there's something not quite right. And here's the problem. He only knew the baptism of John. Seems as though he doesn't know the fullness of Christian baptism. Now, obviously, you know, many questions come to mind. How, I mean, how wrong was he? How right was he? What did he know or not know? I mean, you start thinking about the baptism of John as he preached to, the, to uh, his disciples before Jesus uh, actually, you know, began full-on full ministry. 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a, a shadow of the reality to come in Jesus Christ. It was preparatory. John baptized with water for repentance. Remember, Jesus will baptize with Holy Spirit, and he will give faith along with that. Uh, from Luke's words here, Apollos was obviously preaching Jesus. He, he had certainly uh, heard things that Jesus had said, some of the oral tradition that made its way to northern Africa and Alexandria. But there were gaps in his thinking. There were some gaps in his theology. Here's a man who showed much promise, and yet there, there was something missing. You know, as I've thought and prayed about this a while and, and done a lot of work in commentaries, I, I kind of liken it to being a believer, but really not understanding much about covenant theology, you know, which is a pretty big deal in terms of the overall unity of the Bible. But I was a Christian for many years before anyone ever explained the covenant of grace to me. Or perhaps it's like being a Christian but not really understanding the doctrines of grace. The fact that we are so helpless in our sin when we are apart from the Lord before we come to know Him that we don't even have the good spiritual sense to seek God unless He comes to us. Unless He regenerates us and draws us to Himself. And then when you, you study the Scripture later on, you realize, oh yeah, it was Him all along. So here, more specifically, it's, it's likely that Apollos doesn't understand the Trinitarian baptism as, you know, as the mark that's given to God's people in the New Testament era and the work of the Holy Spirit and so forth, that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, a, a tremendous epical adjustment took place that He conducted from heaven through the Holy Spirit as He, as he gave it to the church. Apollos needed some doctrinal instruction. And so that is the cameo of Apollos. And now, now here's, there's Priscilla and Aquila. I told you there were three cameos and three puzzles. Well, Paul has this, this deal with the haircut. Not totally sure what that is. Apollos, and, and he only knows the baptism of John. We're, we're, again, we're, we're puzzling a bit about that. And now we have Priscilla and Aquila. And all of a sudden, Luke's calling this godly couple... By the name of the wife first, he's introduced him as Aquila and Priscilla previously, but now it's, it's Priscilla and Aquila. They must have heard Apollos preaching in the synagogue, and you can imagine something of the conversation. Well, isn't that wonderful? It's, isn't it extraordinary to think of the power of God and the Holy Spirit taking the gospel to the great, great city of Alexandria in Egypt? Wasn't it wonderful to hear Apollos uh, expound the scriptures with such fervor and enthusiasm? You know, Aquila and Priscilla might have said, you know, my heart was really blessed as I listened to him. But did you think there was something missing? You know, sometimes you can just tell. There's just something just a little bit off theologically. And perhaps you can imagine Aquila saying, yes, well, what do you, what do you think? And she says, well, I think we ought to invite him over for dinner. I think we should invite him home to our home and, you know, not call him out in public, not embarrass him there, but let's take him aside. Let's instruct him. Let's help him. Let's encourage him. So at least three things come to mind as I reflect on that in this passage. First of all, here's a, here's a godly couple who take interest in a young man with great promise and they want to encourage him. Now, I can't tell you the number of, of, of couples that, that did that to Susie and me when we were in our late 20s. I mean, I mean, I can think of at least three or four that were super close and good about doing that. There were others, but uh, it started with two uh, mature believers, a husband and a wife, uh, actually a pastor and his wife. They would invite us over. To their house, we had Bible study together, we prayed together, we even did recreational things, like we went camping together. They were constantly giving me books 
But they weren't only giving me books. Because the next time we would get together, they would say, tell me about the book that you're reading. And gently but very certainly, they would instruct me. And eventually they began to instruct me in the, in the doctrines of grace. They were instructing me in biblical theology and covenant theology and the, more of the depth of the doctrine of Scripture. They really made an investment in my life. And God used their investment as part of the impetus even to call me into full-time ministry. But, but they wanted me to be a no-holes-barred, uh, you know, unapologetically biblical Christian. That was their agenda. I'm so grateful for that. You know, there's a story in the time of the Reformation of Hugh Latimer. Latimer, of course, was used by God uh, in the cause of the English Reformation. But Thomas Bilney was a young monk who understood the gospel. And I think at this time better than Hugh Latimer did at this point. Now, Latimer was above him in, in position, in station. And so he wondered, how can I talk to Hugh Latimer about the gospel without offending him? I want to encourage him. You know what Bilney did? This is wonderful. Of course, it was an early part of the, of the Reformation when they still had confessionals. Well, they would still go to a confession box and they would confess their sins to a priest. So Bilney goes to the Latimer and he says, I want to confess my sins. And Hugh Latimer takes him into the confessional and, and Bilney begins to, to actually, as he's confessing his sins, he's articulating the gospel to him. And so Latimer is a captive audience, so he can't leave. And slowly but surely, after several of these confessions, Hugh Latimer got it. He understood the doctrines of the gospel and the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement for us and, and how it's, it's in faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, and so forth. Well, here's a, here's a godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They're showing interest in this young man, and, that, and that's so important in ministry. That, that's one of the reasons, Lord willing, I, I want us to get back to evening worship so these, these young preachers from RTS can come over and preach to us on a Sunday evening and we can encourage them and pray for them. And you know, when we do that, when we have them over, when we listen to their sermons intently, when we ask good questions, when we show interest, we give them a chance to develop their preaching skills, we encourage them, we motivate them, and we help them in a small way, we're doing work just like Aquila and Priscilla. And secondly, notice here about this couple, um, the question arises, why does Luke put her name first? Now, don't be offended or bent out of shape, but there's something going on here because there are couples where the wife is actually more astute in things of the gospel than the husband is. That happens. There are many couples here where the wife actually, at some point, has a better grasp of theology and sometimes more articulate theologically than the husband is. And that in no way changes the responsibility of the man to be the spiritual head of the home and to provide nurture and godly leadership, even if she knows more than he does. But I have to wonder if Priscilla is that kind of woman here. Who's, she is theologically astute because of the way Luke mentions her here. Perhaps that's what's going on. And yet at no stage do you even detect that there's any difficulty in the, in the marriage whatsoever. So I think there's a wonderful demonstration here of how the New Testament actually supports and encourages the education of women in theological matters. Yes, women have different roles. I believe the scripture is clear that elders and deacons in the church should be men. But there's no reluctance whatsoever in the New Testament of saying that even here Priscilla can instruct Apollos without any disregard of her, 
of her responsibility to her husband to be subject to him as they come alongside and they, and they kind of counsel him together. And then at the same time for her to, to be silent in church and to do the things that she needs to do in her, in her home. And I think there's a wonderful example of a very talented woman. There's no hint here of any office or any call to ministry. That isn't even on, on the agenda. It's just a positive affirmation that here in the New Testament, the, the affirmation of the right of women to be educated in the things of the gospel. I think that's a wonderful thing. How valuable our women are uh, when it comes to taking their place in the, in the congregation and, and encouraging. And then, uh, thirdly, you know, when Paul gets back to Ephesus after this journey, he writes his letter to the, to the church in Corinth. Now, meanwhile, Paulus has been sent there with letters of recommendation from people like Priscilla and Aquila and others recommending him to the church in Corinth. They've played a part in that. And when he arrived, verse 27b, notice he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So there's, there's encouragement here. There's discipleship. Uh, Apollos is also laboring in, in gospel ministry to, to disciple people, encourage them. When Paul writes that first letter to the Corinthians, right at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, he talks about the church, the, the church sending greetings, the, the church which meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. He's sending greetings from Ephesus to the church in Corinth, and he's sending greetings from the, the church that meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were exiles. They've been kicked out the, of Rome for, for six or seven years now. Eventually, we know from the letter to, the, to Rome that they'll be back in Rome again when there's a new emperor. But you know, and this, this is a wonderful thing, they didn't waste those six or seven years in exile from their home city. They were tent makers. Maybe they had a business in Corinth. Maybe they had another business in Ephesus. But they didn't waste that period. They've used that period of exile and providential hardship for the furtherance of the gospel in Corinth and in Ephesus and in the life of this important man, Apollos. You know, sometimes when, when God brings hardship or difficulty, sort of what we might call a curveball, uh, when that comes into our lives, maybe it's God's opportunity for us to do something for God's kingdom like Priscilla and Aquila. So three portraits, three puzzles, some of which we don't have many answers to, but some of which there are lessons, I think, for us to learn. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that every part of Scripture is meant to help us, instruct us, edify us, encourage us, at times rebuke us, but always draw us to Jesus. We pray this morning that we might learn those particular truths that you want us to learn. Will you hide your word in our hearts? Uh, and Lord, help us not to sin against you. And, and pray that we'll live for you in all that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.